Liverpool One Church, it is great to see you today. Welcome. It is so brilliant to have everybody with us in for the second part of our current series that's simply called Trying to Do Right Wrong. Um, it really is just fantastic to have everybody here. And I don't know whether you were in church last week, but one of the things that I could say in kind of summary is that last Sunday, uh, Emma, my wife, was doing the talk, and all I can say is we went to whole nother levels. No, no, I don't know what you're thinking about because you might be thinking maybe whole nother levels in spirituality, right? Or maybe whole nother levels in terms of the church, which is stuff that I wouldn't even know what that means anyway. However, if that's what you're thinking, no, 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 no. But we went to whole nother levels in my marriage because last week, Emma opened the gateway for new levels of carnage. Because the thing is, last week, I really felt as though I was a little bit hard done to, if I'm honest. I felt like she decided to publicly expose certain elements of our private married life that I felt were unfair and were without context. She said that I was slow. But don't take my word for it. If you weren't here last Sunday, this is what she said. He might be slow, 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 slow. He might be slow, he might be slow, 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 He might be slow, he might be slow. Slow, really? Is that how we're going to roll now? Yeah, slow. Well, the thing is, today is my week. And I just want to give you a little bit of context to my wife describing me as slow and then you can play the role of judge and jury because she said that I was slow at DIY. That's what she was referencing. You know, one Saturday morning, and I don't know how it is in your house, but in our house, uh, Saturday is like the only day that you're ever going to closely um, have any kind of light in and typically anyway because of the sports things going on with kids and whatnot we don't really get much of a lie-in at all but on this one particular Saturday a while back we're lying in bed and it's about quarter to eight right now when I wake up I don't know whether you're like me but when I wake up it's like one eye will open, the other will stay shut, and then I'll probably go into a coma again. And if you're going to even try and get me out of bed, it needs to be done with a cup of tea. And if that's not happening, then I'm going to be, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to struggle getting up. And Emma literally gets up and she sits up. She doesn't even say hello, good morning, hon. She doesn't say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? She just sits up in bed and she turns around and she says to me, uh, hey, do you know what? I think that we should decorate the living room. Now, I'm, I'm like, at this time, like, completely comatose, and she said it again. You know the way that your wife will always intentionally try and ensure that you hear every word that comes out of her mouth? And she's like, I think we should decorate the living room. And I'm kind of, like, coming around, and I'm going, are you serious? It's, like, 7.45. We don't need to be talking about this now. And, hey, listen, we've only just finished decorating somewhere else. So the last thing on my agenda right now is to go and start decorating the living room. It's going to like put the thing out of action for a number of weeks. We've got a really busy schedule coming up. This is just not on my radar. You know what she did then? She just went, hmm, hmm, hmm. So I did what every guy did. I just pulled the covers back up over my head and went to sleep, right? I get up about half an hour later. I come down into the living room. Emma 
has literally stepped out of bed and walked into the living room, grabbed herself a knife from the kitchen on the way, stands on top of the couch and is there scraping the wallpaper off the living room. And I'm like thinking to myself, are you for real? So when my wife says that I am slow, no, 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 I am normal. She has, she just lives at this freakish like, you know, capacity and speed all of the time. It's crazy. But, but listen, don't think that that was some kind of freak thing that just happened once. You know, our house, right, I don't really know why this is, but when you get to the top of the first set of stairs, there's like a long landing. And I presume that at some point, it was built in 1901, at some point, there was like another doorway that, that led into the latter part of the landing. And there used to be this like door frame that kind of wrapped into the wall. And what was funny was the door frame had obviously been there well before, you know, the skirting boards, the picture rail, the dado rail or anything like that. And Emma says to me, you know, I think that we should um, take the door frame out. And I said to her, you know what, hon, I really don't want to do that, but, but here's the reason why. If we rip the door frame out, firstly, our house was built in 1901 and it's on the old laughing plaster and the walls are going to like fall down. And secondly, the thing is that the skirting board butts up to the door frame, as does the picture rail, as does the data rail. And it's kind of like, if we rip that thing out, we're going to have like about three, four inches worth of wood that needs piecing on three different places either side of the wall. So I really don't think that that's going to be a wise move. It's going to be a big job. It's going to be quite involved. And I'm just thinking like, right now is not the right time for that. I I hear your heart. You want to get rid of that. Maybe at some point, but not right now. Literally, she does this. She goes, hmm. I went out to football, right, with one of our boys, and I came back, and when I walked through the door, she stood at the top of the landing, and she's waiting for me, right? She's gone and found a great big hammer and bolster, which I have never in my entire life seen Emma try to use before, and she just starts hitting this door frame, and I'm like going, what are you doing? And the more I'm shouting, she's just hitting this door frame, right? And as she's hitting it, the plaster's cracking and like falling down on top of her head. And she's not interested. She just keeps hitting the thing. And then she hits it so hard, it kind of like buckles away from the wall. So now at the top of the landing, we've got this bent door frame that's no longer in the wall. And she just goes, hmm, going to have to change it now then, aren't you? So when my wife says that I am slow, no, 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 I am normal. She is officially freak of nature. But when it does come to DIY, it is true that I like to, you know, make sure that things are done properly. At least like, you know, get something down, cover some furniture up, move some things out of a room. That is my wiring. You know, do something, try and do it properly, at least of sorts. But when it comes to that with my wife, it's like, you know what? DIY is a free-for-all. I think, in fact, I'm convinced that she's always trying to go about it the right way, but she ends up doing it the wrong way, in my humble opinion. But, you know, trying to do the right thing the wrong way is something that we struggle with in our faith life all the time, too. In fact, way more than you'd even realize. Perhaps one of the most difficult areas where we often try to do it right but end up getting it done wrong is when it comes to sharing our faith. I mean... If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, chances are at some point you've thought about maybe whether or not you should share your faith. You know, kind of like open up your world to the people that are in your world. 
But if you're anything like me, then you've probably experienced one of two tensions that makes you very reluctant to share your faith. The first tension that we all feel is that it's really hard sometimes to just kind of know what to say. When it comes to sharing your faith, it's really difficult to kind of know what to say, how to do it. You feel awkward. You feel like this is just going to go horribly wrong. You're going to confuse somebody, make things far worse than they really need to be. You just feel like this is just not going to go right at all. So because you don't know what to say, you end up not saying anything at all. But then perhaps the second tension that we all deal and wrestle with is sometimes just not knowing who to share your faith with. It's kind of like we we come to church and we're involved in following Jesus, but at times it can be hard and awkward to figure out, well, who should I share my faith with anyway? And let me just speak to those of you who are Christians. And if you're in church today and maybe you don't yet follow Jesus or you've never made that decision to cross the line and and put your hope and trust in God, then I just want to say, we're so glad you're here. Like, welcome, honestly. Um, It's brilliant that you're here, and we're delighted that you get to sneak between the curtains today and just sort of witness a conversation that's taking place in the same way that we would just eat and converse over a kitchen table. You're getting to see that through the window of the life of our church today, because if you are a follower of Jesus, I think this. Chances are there is a big part of you that is incredibly grateful for all that God has done in your life. There's a big part of you that is thankful and so appreciative for everything that God has done. I mean, not only has he brought you into this real, authentic relationship with him, but you get heaven. He has saved you. He has rescued you. You've experienced his love and you are appreciative of that. Since following Christ, you've experienced firsthand exactly what it's like to be on the receiving end of God's favor and God's grace. Since following Christ, you're so aware that you're grateful because he's rescued you from wherever your life was when God found you. And you know where you were, but yet are now aware of how good God has been to you. You're aware of how he's turned things around. He's turned things around in your family. He's turned things around in your children. You're appreciative and thankful for the good ways that God has been to you when you had that thing going on. Whatever the thing was, maybe it was a work thing. Maybe it was a career thing, maybe a relational thing, maybe a money thing, but you had something going on and it feels to you like since you've chosen to follow Christ, it's like he's made your life better and he's made you better at life. And you're thankful, you're appreciative. And now not only are you thankful and appreciative, but you're passionately wanting to somehow figure this thing out about, well, should I share my faith also? But then... We get overwhelmed with the difficulties and the challenges that make it so hard for us to do. Because firstly, we say, well, I don't really know who to share my faith with anyway. And then secondly, and even if I did, I'm not too sure that I would know what to say. If I did, I'd probably screw the thing up. If I did, I'm not sure that I would be any good at that at all. And you know, this first tension of not knowing who to share your faith with is not something that's new to us today. In fact, when you read the scriptures, what you can find is that even since the early inception of the first church, they struggled and wrestled with this problem too. Who is this church for anyway? Who is it for when we choose to follow Christ? You know, when Jesus died and was killed on the cross at the point of crucifixion and then when he was rose back to life again by the power of God just three days later. 
The early church that had witnessed that, the eyewitness accounts that had recorded all of this information, also record the struggles of one particular individual on this key subject too. He's a guy whose name is Peter, and maybe you've heard of him. He was one of the 12 disciples. He had the fiery temperament. He was the guy that went, they were in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was arrested by all of the soldiers. He was the one that pulled out his sword and lopped off the guard's ear that then in turn meant that the, the, the miracle of the healing of the ear had to be conducted by Jesus. It was a crazy story, but he was a bit of a hot head and would just kind of throw himself into everything. But then in just a moment, it was like he blew so cold because he ran away and he ended up denying that he even knew Jesus at all? Well, this same Peter, who we would think when we look back and recount the details of his life, that God would surely not use anybody like Peter to build the first church on, to build the early church on. Well, actually, what we see is that Peter was exactly the kind of person that God was going to use to build this thing. I mean, this thing that we call church, that we are part of today, 2,000 years later, it was started in part by Peter, someone that you would never think that God would use. And that gives me great hope that if he can use the Peters of this world, then he can also use us too, to be involved in things that are way bigger way greater than any one of us could ever do or accomplish on our own. But anyway, getting back to Peter, he really struggled with this whole concept of, you know, I don't even know who I should share my faith with anyway. In fact, Peter, he, um, he was a Jew. He came from Jewish origin, which meant that he was familiar with Hebrew. It meant that he was brought up on the Torah. It meant that he was completely accustomed to following the laws and the traditions of Moses. People think, oh, he followed the Ten Commandments. No, there were like over 600 specific rules that Peter lived by and followed. So his background and the context of his life was that of being Jewish. So when he saw Jesus killed on the cross and then brought back to life, by God, he started to map out how he thought the early church would commence in a way that would be honoring to God. And he starts to join all of these dots. He's trying to do the right thing, but he actually goes about it completely the wrong way. Because Peter, who was Jewish, realizes also that Jesus was Jewish too. He was a rabbi. He would worship in the temple. And for years, Peter, I'm talking about like not even for a short period of time, but for in excess of 10 to 12 years, Peter, after Jesus had been raised back to life on the cross, Peter was convinced that God had sent Jesus, who was also Jewish like himself, only for Jewish people. I mean, he was certain that God had sent Jesus for Jewish people. It was a problem. Because in Peter's head, he had it all mapped out. In Peter's head, it was all about segregation and boxes. It was all about groupings of people. And in the same way that he recounted God's relationship with people in the Old Testament, he made the big mistake of bringing that into the new. He made the big mistake of thinking that in the same way that in the Old Testament, we refer to it as the Old Covenant, that God would relate and love on one particular group of people. He thought that the same would apply under the New Covenant also. But actually, he was making a huge mistake. He was getting this thing completely wrong. He was thinking like, there's my people and there's your people and God loves my people and not your people. 
And if you're Jewish, it's now his job to share his faith about Jesus being brought back to life on the cross with everybody that's Jewish. He saw it as being his responsibility to make sure that everybody would go to heaven so long as they were Jewish. But as for anybody else, he was just like, sucks to be you, screw you, it's not my thing. Like God sent Jesus for Jewish people would have been the anthem of Peter's heart. He would have been like, this is not your thing, this is our thing. It was exclusive. You're not in our group because you're not of Jewish origin. And he was literally trying to share his faith, trying to do the right thing, but going about it in completely the wrong way. To the point in which, in Acts, it was um, one of the early books in the New Testament. It was written by a guy called Luke. He was really forensic in nature. He was like a doctor, but he basically starts to recount this occurrence where God has to realign and rework on Peter's thinking. And you know, Peter's a typical guy, right? He's a busy guy and God perhaps maybe was unable to get his attention when he was awake. So God grabs this opportunity one day when Peter's literally waiting for some dinner. He falls asleep and he has a nap and God gives him this really specific dream. And you can kind of go into it and read up about it yourselves, but he sees this blanket and every kind of wild animal coming onto the blanket. And then God asks Peter a question about which animals are unclean to eat and Peter responds in a way that would be completely fitting and according to his Jewish background, but God kind of tells him, no, no, this is completely wrong. It's like, like, like the rules have changed now, Peter. Everything's changed and God speaks directly to Peter's heart. But what's interesting is literally what happens after this dream that God gives to Peter, we find that Peter starts to speak in a completely different way. What we find is that Peter starts to do things in a completely new way. And I want to jump into that in Acts 10. We're going to look at verse 27 through to 29. Because for me to give a little bit of context, Peter ends up going to a guy's house whose name is Cornelius. But Peter's a Jew and Cornelius, don't forget, he's he's not Jewish, which means he's a Gentile because people were segregated into these categories. It just basically meant that he wasn't Jewish like Peter. There was Jewish people and then there were everybody else. So there was Peter and his tribe and there was everybody else. And Cornelius, well, he was in the everybody else category. And Cornelius has this thing going on with another guy that's just in the process of following God. And Peter ends up coming to Cornelius' house. In verse 27, it says this. Talking things over, they went out into the house where Cornelius introduced Peter to everyone who had come. Peter addressed them. You know, I'm sure that this is highly irregular. Let's just pause there for a moment. Are you serious? Highly irregular? One of the laws that Peter would have lived his life by would have stipulated that as a Jewish person, you would never enter the house of a Gentile. I mean, this was way more than just being highly irregular. Every Gentile person gathered in that house would have been freaking out now. Like, are you serious? Is this Peter? Is Peter not a Jew? I mean, is Peter not following the Torah and all the the rules and all the regulations? They would have been like, I cannot believe that Peter is even here, he's breaking protocol, he shouldn't even be there, but he's there in a Gentile's house, in the living room of somebody that's completely different to him. And he goes on to say, Jews just don't do this, 
visit and relax with people of another race. But God has just shown me that no race is better than any other. What's funny is it's like, you know, Peter's talking to these guys as though this is something that he's been learning over the duration of his life over the past two or three years. It's like, no, no, the dude literally fell asleep before dinner, had a nap, God spoke to him, and now he's in the house of a Gentile. And he's like, listen, it's okay, guys. This might be freaking you out, but I've already spoken to God about this. Like, God's dropped something into my heart, and it's all good now. It's a bit strange because it's freaking you out, but honestly, God's spoken to me now, and there is no race better than any other. This is literally hot off the press. And then Peter goes on to say in verse 34 through to verse 36, and this is our key scripture for today. It says this, Peter fairly exploded with his good news. It's God's own truth. Nothing could be plainer. God plays no favorites. It makes no difference who you are or where you're from. Now check this bit out. If you want God and are ready to do what he says, the door is open. The door is open. The message he sent to the children of Israel that through Jesus Christ, everything is being put together again. Well, he's doing that everywhere with everyone. This right here is a game changer at the start of the early church. All of a sudden, we change gears from this start-up fellowship of Jesus Christ done in such a way that is so exclusive to now Peter saying, actually, I was getting it wrong. This Jesus thing, this relationship with God thing, this is for people everywhere and for everyone. There's no box anymore. There's no groups anymore. It's not like God looks on your life more favorably than he would look on mine or vice versa. It's not like that God would include some and intentionally exclude others. It's completely different now. But I think that we can look at one of those stories found in Acts and find it difficult to relate to in our own life. Especially because we haven't, if we're honest, let's call a spade a spade, we haven't got the whole Jewish-Gentile separation thing going on, right? That really doesn't have the same cultural divide or meaning going on in our world today. Yet, do you know the crazy thing is? Is we can do the same thing even in our church at Liverpool One every single week and month and year. We can still carry the same sentiment, the same feeling, the same ideas that maybe, maybe God, because he saved me and he's been so good for me, maybe, maybe this really is for me. Maybe this really is for me and my friends and people like me, but it, it might not be for people who are unlike me. I can understand how this could be for people who are from a similar social or economic background, but, but can it really be for people who are not from that same background? And we too can almost subconsciously travel a road that takes our Christianity into something that ends up becoming exclusive when it was never at all what it was supposed to be. We, we, we can make our church a place for people like us at the cost of excluding others. Because that's the natural compass of the way in which we work. Our, our natural compass is to be wired in such a way that says, well, this is my thing, not your thing. This is what I do. It might not be what you do. So when it comes to sharing your faith, 
We have this challenge because we subconsciously can feel and think that maybe they wouldn't be the type of person that God would ever want to reach. But here's the thing. What if God wants to use you in your context to bridge the gap, to bridge the divide, to bridge the chasm between God, our Father in heaven, who you are thankful and appreciative for every good thing that he's done in your life? What if that same God is wanting to use you to bridge the gap to introduce people who do not know him into a loving and real relationship with him. I mean like people in your hospital, people in your practice, people in your office, people in your warehouse, people on your floor, people in your street, people at your school, people in your university. What if God wanted to use you? To bridge the gap and introduce people who do not know him into a real, loving, unauthentic relationship. If God wanted to use you, would you be being would you be open to being used by God? But it doesn't necessarily deal with the second part of our tension, does it? Because it's one thing to maybe understand well who we should share our faith with, but what should we actually say? I mean, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to convey all of these good thoughts and these good ideas that that we're so mindful of that God has been towards us? How do we show someone else what God has done in our life? And I think this is perhaps the, the biggest tension that we can all wrestle with. Do you know, when we started Liverpool One Church, we, we said this. We said that we're going to do this because we exist to change lives for Christ one life at a time. And we understood that in church world, that there are so many things that we can disagree on. I mean, there's tons of them. I mean, we can disagree on styles. We can disagree on characters. We can disagree sometimes on theology. But one thing that I think that we are understanding more now as a church is that whilst it's okay to disagree on some things, there's one thing that we all agree on. And that's that we all agree that the reason why we're here is to change lives for Christ one life at a time. Like We can agree on that. We might struggle about this and we might not be all that sure about that, but we can agree that that's the main reason why we are here. And when we started the church, we knew that we wanted to build and create an environment that would make it easy for people to follow God. And I think that the main reason for that is I think that when it comes to sharing your faith, the biggest challenge that we have are other people's perception of what you actually go to and what you are involved in. Because when you talk about church, what you think about in your mind's eye is not what the single mom at the school gate is thinking about when you start talking to her about church. The same thing that's in your heart is not in her. The same thing that's in your head is not what she's thinking about because she's thinking church Cold, damp, uninviting, unwelcoming, inhospitable. Yes, that's it, not inhospitable. (laughs) But she's not thinking all of the good things that you would think about when you think about church and how your family have been included and how your children are being brought up in the ways of God. They're not thinking the same thing as you. So I think that one of the biggest challenges that we've got somehow is to change people's perception. I mean, even before 
We go down the route of sharing faith and introducing them to God. The perception issue has got to be spoken about and dealt with and talked about. And we want to help you with that. You know, as a church, we are going to pull out all the stops this Christmas to make it easy for you to bring people in your world to come to church who you know and you love that maybe you think might never be interested in following God. We are going to pull out every stop. All of our staff, all of our team, all of our people, we are pulling out all the stops. Because here's the thing. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to talk to somebody about what you believe and why? when they've already experienced the same thing that you experience every single week. Because when you try and have that conversation without them first seeing what you're involved in, it's kind of like it doesn't make a a great deal of sense because of the perception issue. So over the next coming weeks, we are asking you that if you follow Christ, if you want to be a part of building a church that changed lives for Christ, one life at a time, bring somebody to church this Christmas. This particular flyer is only highlighting one of three services, three events that we're putting on, because you can come on the Friday, the Saturday, uh, Friday, the, not the Saturday, no, the Friday or the Sunday twice, right? But what we're saying is that, that we're going to pull out all the stops and, and you can trust us. We're not going to do anything weird that's going to freak your friends out that you've got incredible relational capital with in the office that provides this platform that makes things feel awkward when you go back and re-engage and talk about them having come to church with you. We are going to pull out all the stops. So what we're actually saying is this. If we understand what Peter said was that this gospel, it's not about creating a country club. It's for everyone everywhere. Then it means that we've got to play our part in that. In fact, the moment that we don't realize that is probably the moment that we should just shut the doors and move out, like hand the thing over, because the moment that we're not doing that, we're not doing what I think Jesus told us was paramount in order for us to be doing what he said when he taught in Matthew 28 about, you know what, hey, listen, guys, you you need to go and make disciples now. It's not like tag, you're it, you're in. This is great for you to have a party with and come to church with each week. It was like, tag, you're it. Now go and reach the world. Now go and invite your world. Now go on love on the unlovable. Now go and be kind to those that have never shown you kindness. Now go and include somebody who doesn't get included anywhere. It's that element of our Christian faith that I don't want to be missing from the life of our church. You know, I'm not a huge movie buff, but when I do watch movies, I like to watch stuff that's got a little bit of history. And perhaps my favorite film of all time is a film called Schindler's List. It's actually a relatively modern film that's designed and created to look old. And it recounts the story of Oscar Schindler, who was an individual that literally was responsible for saving so many Jewish lives from the Holocaust. And there's this scene right at the end of the movie where... Oscar's having to move out now and he is gathered by every single Jewish person whose life 
He has directly been responsible for saving by purchasing them with money to come and work at times in jobs that didn't really exist, but it gave them a ticket to stay with him as opposed to being transferred to places like Auschwitz where they would simply have been put straight to death. And he's gathered by all of these people and this conversation is what happens. As soon as peace occurs, I want, um, I want that cloth distributed to the workers. Two and a half meters each. Also, each person is to get a bottle of vodka. They won't drink it, they know its value. Likewise, those Egyptian cigarettes we organize. It'll be done, everything you ask. We have written a letter trying to explain things in case you were captured. Every worker has signed it. Ten people. 
and more people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for at least one. You would have given me one. One more. One more person. Person stand. For this. I could have gone. One more person. And I this man and he's looking out at everybody that he has directly been involved in rescuing and saving their lives of and all he can think about is that if he'd just done just a little bit more then he could have got some more into that group he's looking and he's seeing everybody that is saved but he's thinking about everybody that has not yet been reached. And, and I don't know where, where your church theology lands, right? I don't know what you think church should be about, but, but let me tell you what I think church should be about. I think that right here at Liverpool One Church, we should be a soul-winning, inviting machine. We should always be wired on those that are not in the room more so than those that are in the room because that's what we're called to do, church. We're not called to group together and have a club or have a luncheon or have a, a nice time together where we get to celebrate the fact that we are all in, but rather at Liverpool One Church, we will be like a laser-guided missile that seeks out those that don't yet know God and introduce a loving God to them. So our ask and our request is simply this, that we never fall away from what the true north of the church has to be. It has to be wired and fixated on those that don't yet know Him. Because if they don't, the consequences of that are way too serious. There's too much stuff going on. And I feel like the day that we become a church, the day that we become a group of followers of Christ that, that don't live open life inviting our world, then I'm the same as you. That's the day that I don't want to play that game because what is the point in that if we're missing out the very root and core thing that Christ calls us to be? Salt and light. Be in the world, but not of it, but be inviting and including people into our Christian faith, not because we like it, not because we think it's awesome, but because we're grateful and appreciative and thankful for every good thing that our God has done for us. So let us be mindful again 
that our faith is for everyone, everywhere. And maybe in this season, together as a church, we can plan and we can scheme of ways that we can intentionally fight to include more people into this great thing that we call the church. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to pray. 